Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I land another guest off my wish list. This time, it's multiple-time IBJJF champion and Palmero Cavalcanti, Lucas Laprie, Black Belt, Jonathan Thomas. Man, did I enjoy this conversation. Prior to the show, we were having some really fun dialogue, breaking down some of Sam Harris's podcasts and our thoughts on them. We clicked immediately, and I almost didn't want to start the show, much preferring this organic moment with this very cool exchange of ideas. But the show must go on. In this episode, you will get a variety of value from jujitsu technique talk, training ideas, recovery, living a life with purpose, floating scheduling, personal productivity, and more. Jonathan is originally from St. Louis, Missouri. As a kid, he wrestled, then joined Goshen Jitsu to study judo. He studied jiu-jitsu books for a bit before joining a grappling club led by one of Hicks and Gracie's most well-known students, Rodrigo Vaghi until Purple Belt, all while pursuing an engineering mathematics degree. In 2008, Jonathan left for Atlanta, Georgia to train at Alliance under Rubens Cobrinha Charles. After two years in Atlanta, Jonathan decided to move to Washington, D.C., where he worked in the satellite industry while training with Ryan Hall. Later, Jonathan decided to move back to Atlanta and reunite with Alliance, this time under Cavalcanti and Laprie. While working full-time and competing, Jonathan took opportunities to teach workshops in Europe, which led to a full-time coaching job originally in Sweden. Jonathan has what seemingly looks like a meteoric but well-deserved rise in the jiu-jitsu community. I've been observing his online work since the beginning, being immediately drawn to his incredibly analytical mind, self-awareness, rapid-paced, uncompromising direct delivery, and his well-thought-out problem-solving abilities. Watching him teach his open guard game is really something to behold. It's something akin to watching a master solve a Rubik's Cube in record time with little to no effort. One is simultaneously left in both awe and inspiration. Jonathan's philosophy of the mini-game, or as I like to think of it, the micro-game, is a fascinating approach which has paid dividends for him and I suspect will be the future of jiu-jitsu instruction. Jonathan claims to not be a hard worker, at least he does not feel he is, because he loves what he does. But if that's the case, he's the hardest lazy worker I've ever met. He has spent countless hours in the jiu-jitsu laboratory working and refining upon the tiniest of details. It feels like Jonathan has really hit his stride. He's in the prime of his life. I think we've only just begun to see what's to come. Thomas Edison once said, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. Chances are, as you're listening to this, Jonathan is on a mat somewhere, dissecting the smallest of details. If he should be gripping slightly higher or slightly lower, palm up or palm down, adjusting an angle by five degrees infinitum. Okay, some housekeeping items. Just a reminder to please give us a positive review on iTunes and check out the Forever White Belt merchandise at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt and become a patron by clicking the support button at the anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt webpage. Also consider joining our community on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash forever white belt and check us out on all the socials by searching for forever white belt. And with that, I give you Jonathan Thomas. Welcome to Forever White Belt. I am your host, Adolfo Ferranda, with a very special guest, and you are... Jonathan Thomas. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for your time, man. I'm happy to be here. You're this American from St. Louis, and you're in Europe right now. You're in Norway currently, correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm visiting right now, training with Tommy and Espen at Wolfing Academy in Norway. So are you still instructor at an academy? 
Yeah, I teach full-time at Fight Center in Gothenburg, Sweden. They've been shut down for a little bit recently because the, the Sweden doesn't like officially lock people down, but they give recommendations. So people generally follow them. So they kind of close classes for a bit. Plus during the winter season, they kind of have like a break from training. But yeah, I teach full-time there. And then also obviously the online coaching and tra- doing seminar tours and kind of a mishmash of a bunch of different stuff. You're known for the what you call the mini game. Do you think of your macro game and in what instances? So to define to the listener who maybe doesn't already know my like micro macro kind of thing, micro mm-hmm. is more what I would call specific training. So like you could imagine jiu-jitsu is what I would call micro jiu-jitsu is like people tend to view jiu-jitsu as like one thing, like, you know, like there's some skill sets that kind of matter across everything in jiu-jitsu, right? But the way I kind of see it is actually jiu-jitsu is kind of this combination of multiple mini games. So for example, you could be good at escaping the mount, but terrible at finishing a triangle choke, right? Because they actually have nothing in common. When you objectively think about it, rugby and football probably have more in common than finishing a triangle choke and escaping mount. Right. So a lot of times people are looking when they're learning, they're looking for like these broad abstract principles like base, balance and things like that. But mm-hmm. often in positions, they're so just different in how they function. Like the the way that you stand that gives you the best balance might get you ankle lock from a coyote tear ankle lock. Mm-hmm. Or the position that gives you uh, the best defense of the arm bar may get you swept into mount, which then puts you in a terrible position. So there's so many variables to consider. It makes it very hard to kind of see things from a like these broad principles. So I find it easier to help people get better at jiu-jitsu by breaking things down into micro games. So I would have a student say, start in a triangle choke and try to spar from the triangle choke and try to finish it. When there's a problem and the guy gets out or stacks them, stop, go back, we address the problem, go again. And we, mm-hmm. if you get good enough at all these micro games, all a regular match is, is a combination of these micro games. And that's what you would call macro jujitsu, right? Which would be basically like, you know, if I'm good at doing a triangle choke and I'm good at doing spider guard and I'm good at setting up spider guard from the grip fight, then in a regular match, I win the grip fight, gets a spider guard. Because I'm good at spider guard, I set up a triangle choke. And because I've done enough time in the triangle choke, I have a good finish, right? So that's how I would compartmentalize the game, right? So you're now zooming back here. Your question was, do I work on my macro jujitsu? That was your question, correct? Yeah, I'm curious when you actually think of it, because if you're coming from this sort of inside out approach, I'm wondering when do you get to that exterior viewpoint and, and how do you go about that? Yeah, or so do you? I would say... No, absolutely. I do. So a lot of it depends on your intent and training. So this is a big, I mean, we could spend the whole podcast on this topic. It's a great question. I would say currently I change depending on what I'm excited about working on, but I probably tend to spend 50, 50, uh, or maybe 70, 30 doing specific versus more macro. Okay. Mm. So macro is basically just to use simple terms, it's a regular role. Okay. So I'm just going to start and, you know, just, and just roll. Okay. Mm. I find that macro tends to be more useful to diagnose my problems. So if I roll with someone in the gym, say I'm rolling with another like competitive black belt, okay? And I go, okay, let's just try to kill each other like it's the finals of worlds, okay? Mm -hmm. If I have that match, at the end of that match, you know, if I lose or I get tapped somewhere or whatever, some bad stuff happens, I will be able to look back at it and and diagnose what happened. And it's the ultimate test of how good is my game, right? Like that's the Mm -hmm. truth. That's what I will do when I fight, right? So if Mm -hmm. I'm fighting and I notice I got into say spider guard or underhook daily Hiva, and I was kind of at a loss and I didn't know what to do and I got messed up there, then I'm going to go, man, there's a hole in my underhook De La Hiva passing. Now, I might have one day where I do nothing but like macro, just regular rolling, and that's going to give me enough data on positions that I have problems with that it's going to drive a lot of my specific work. So mm-hmm. then I might go, oh, let me work on my underhook De La Hiva, right? 
passing, for example, underhook daily Hiva passing or spider guard passing. And I might spend the next day doing two hours just starting in spider guard, trying to pass, going deep on the position to patch the problems. I'll spend a bit of time on that until I make progress. The next time I regular roll and that position pops up, hopefully I should do a little bit better in it. So I use macro jujitsu kind of as a final diagnosis of my game as a whole. And then I troubleshoot and patch problems using specific training or micro training to kind of patch these individual positions because each position is so complicated. People like don't really, people think jujitsu is complicated, but it's even more complicated than they think, right? Like Mm -hmm. if I just start in collar sleeve, that's not just like a single position. I mean, like you could spend years just like uh, if you're in a, right. An orchestra, Uh right. You can be like 20 years good at the clarinet and know nothing about playing the cello. Right. So Uh it's similar with positions, Uh right. To have a good orchestra, you need a lot of different instruments to have a good orchestra. Right. But you have to be good at each of those instruments. And if you're only good or like mega good at one instrument, then the orchestra is going to be bad because you only have one instrument. So you need to go broad and narrow. Right. But ultimately, you, your orchestra can only be as good as the individual instruments. So I view positions in micro jujitsu as developing the instruments and the orchestra is kind of like playing all of them together, if that makes sense. So mm. as far as like how much is macro versus how much is micro, this leads to one more topic. Sometimes I will do things where I might do specific training that's more broad, but also not full regular training. So what that might look like is sometimes if you say only do collar sleeve, this is getting super, super like meta here, but Sometimes mm-hmm. if you only do collar sleeve and I specific spar from there only, I can get really good at it. Okay. And then I only do double sleeve as well on a separate day, right? You can be very good at both of those. But when you do something where I go, okay, I'm going to specific spar and I can do collar sleeve or double sleeve, you can unlock these attacks by transitioning. And what happens is when I'm playing, say, double sleeve on someone, I might get to a position that are, it might, there's certain positions within double sleeve that are stronger than others, okay? So mm-hmm. for example, maybe a simpler example would be if I was in closed guard, if I have an overhook on the person's arm, it's stronger than if I'm just like, I don't have a grip on anything. Either mm-hmm. way, I'm in closed guard, but it's kind of like a more niche position within the closed guard, okay? Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. I'm in double sleeve, there's positions that my opponent on top knows to try to avoid letting me get to because they're very strong. But if I'm playing collar sleeve, because the guy's thinking in terms of collar sleeve, he's defending collar sleeve attacks. Sometimes I can position my legs in such a way that they're dominant for a double sleeve position. And it only takes one quick grip change to go from collar sleeve to double sleeve. Now I'm holding both sleeves, right? And I suddenly am in a dominant double sleeve position, not just double sleeve, but a dominant double sleeve position. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you can actually unlock attacks that you would not have normally seen by learning to combine and transition. That being said, however, you can only do that to the extent that you understand each individual position. So if you don't have a good double sleeve at all and you have a good collar sleeve, you're not going to be good at mixing collar sleeve and double sleeve because you don't know the extent of what you can do with double sleeve. But when you're really good at double sleeve and you're really good at collar sleeve and you train them each in isolation, and then you do trainings where you're allowed to mix them, you'll start to find these more advanced things. But again, all of the macro stuff gets massively compounded the more depth you have in the micro. So I don't know if it's a correct assumption, then I would guess that via your macro game that you discovered the vice guard, correct? I mean, I thought I heard you say something like that. When you're rolling with someone, you noticed this particular grip. For sure. Like there, yeah, that, I mean, I just accidentally stumbled across that. I was trying to do, I was playing single, I think it actually came from doing specific training. I think I was specific training uh, lasso 
And that was kind of, it was kind of a very specific thing, which is like, I call it single sleeve. It's basically, I have a lasso with my left leg and my left hand on their sleeve. And then my right hand is free to either go collar sleeve or double sleeve. Double sleeve would be grabbing their far sleeve. I just call that double sleeve because you have both sleeves, right? So sometimes guys hide that, that second sleeve, right? So I was looking for it and I can't grab it. So then usually I go collar sleeve or cross sleeve, meaning my right hand would grab the sleeve that my left hand is holding. And then I go into like a cross sleeve system, like deep De La Hiva or something. Okay. So I was trying to just play with ideas and I, w- I did that cross grip. And then there used to be this old like invert. I mean, people still use it, but it's not that common where you could do like a deep lasso. You get the cross grip and you invert and then you do this kind of inverted triangle setup. Well, I was trying like a variation of that with the lapel and I inverted with Alec Balding because he used to be one of my main training partners. And then when I came back, I just kind of messed it up and I landed in that position and I noticed he couldn't get his hand out easily because my leg was trapping it. And then I grabbed the lapel. Then we started to build off that and then it slowly really worked. Right. So it's not like I was looking to develop something new. It more just stumbled into me. I think that that also makes an important point, which is that it's really important when you're training to have different modalities of training, right? A lot of people kind of view training as come in and roll hard. That's mm-hmm. it, right? But I have sessions where I'm going really hard. And then I have sessions where, you know, either I go with like a black belt and we agree to kind of go a little bit lighter, or I go with someone who's like much lower level than me that I can kind of control the pace. And I go at a slower kind of more creative pace. I would mm-hmm. call it where I could go for two hours and kind of play with different movements and patterns. Because a lot of times things that make a huge difference in positions are like people think it's hard work, right? And like hard work matters. But at the end of the day, someone could go into the gym. Like uh, I've been training a ton with Espen this week on uh, passing the underhook De La Hiva, right? And every training session, like one of us will be doing something that's working and then like it'll work that whole day. And then the other person gets frustrated and then they end up patching something coming up with some new detail. And then the other person just has a really hard time with it. And it kind of just keeps going back and forth. And we were working on the underhook De La Hiva uh, yesterday and the day before. And it was just giving me such a hard time because it's such a hard position to get out of, especially when they do the lapel wrap in the position. And then like uh, last night, instead of going into train, I just stayed home and watched a video of just trying to find other competitors in the position to see if I could find any ideas. And I just noticed this one detail change I saw Leandro Lowe use versus AJ Souza, where he turns his hand backwards when he grabs the pant. And I'm like, oh, maybe that's something. I played mm-hmm. with that and it completely unlocked the uh, the positioner. It gave me a lot more attack options from the top to try to pass it. So that's something that wasn't even physical labor on the mat, but it was information. It was a new piece of information that unlocked the position, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people think hard training is what matters. And of course that matters too, but really what you're looking for is information, right? If you took mm-hmm. someone who's trained for th- three years today and then take them back like seven years ago in jiu-jitsu, they're going to do way better because they have access to better information. So uh, a lot of my training, I'll have hard rounds, but I also have t- rounds where I'm allowed to play more and, and try stuff out so that I can have an open mindset to try things. If it's mm-hmm. too rigid and too intense all the time, then people aren't willing to t- make mistakes and open up. I'm a big fan of the podcast, uh, BJJ Mental Models. We're friends with Steve Kwan. I know you were on there recently and this topic sort of came up, right? So they're big proponents of the the base posture structure concept. And you came on and you pushed back a little bit, not disrespectfully or just having your own opinion. And it was really eye-opening. I think it was really helpful. You were talking about like the beginner. So this concept of coming into it, like, okay, base posture structure, right? I have to have base posture structure versus your mini game approach. Is that, I think you mentioned it, but is that how you approach it or the beginner? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. The problem is that we throw beginners into regular rolling and people want results now, 
right? Mm -hmm. If I was going to take someone who knows nothing about jiu-jitsu and I was going to put them in a match versus a world-class black belt and I was going to try to coach them on how to try to beat him, objectively, there's no way he should beat him, right? Like the Mm -hmm. world-class black belt has like decades of training and stuff. So there's no way that white belt should be able to beat him. But if I had to take that job, then what I would probably do is tell him, okay, you're going to stay standing. You're going to like fake like you're going for a takedown, break grips all the time and back up. And maybe the guy will get tired and then you can try to spaz a double leg at the last second or I don't know, like something like that. That's not how you should actually fight, though. That's terrible jujitsu, but that's probably the best thing you could do at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So people are always trying to give people advice to make them more effective immediately in a regular match. But that's not really what you want. Like breaking grips up and backing away all the time might make you not get swept as easily, but it's also making you not as good at passing, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that if instead we focus on skill development, like, okay, what if the first week of someone's training was, you know, okay, they're going to start with a triangle choke on their partner and then Mm -hmm. their partner is going to start resisting, right? And Mm -hmm. then they fight from the triangle. And then when there's a problem and then the guy stacks them or gets out, okay, go back. And then the coach is like, okay, you know, this happened when the guy stacks, you need to lower your hip. And like, it's at a pace they can digest, right? Mm -hmm. So like when you learn math, you learn arithmetic or actually you learn counting first, right? Mm -hmm. Then you learn arithmetic, adding, then you learn subtraction, then you learn multiplication and division. And then you move to algebra, right? And you Mm -hmm. slowly work your way up, right? But when you're doing calculus, you're using algebra and uh, subtraction and addition and everything, you know, you're doing algebra in there, geometry in there, trigonometry, you're doing all of that stuff in there. Okay. Maybe not geometry, but, but you're using all this stuff in calculus, right? So it's built off of the fundamental structures, right? The fundamental mm-hmm. positions or uh, ideas, concepts, right? So the thing is that I can't like really show people meaningful things without some of those foundational skill sets. So by isolating arithmetic, we learn to do addition. And then isolating subtraction, we learn to do that. And then we can tackle an algebra problem that has both uh, subtraction and addition in it, right? Mm-hmm. So if I take a week with someone and have them spar from a triangle choke, they're going to learn the problems that come up and their brain is going to be engaged because they're going to see the problem when it comes up and they go, oh man, the guy's stacking me. And then I show them the solution to drop their hip. They go, okay, I'm going to do that. They try it and then it doesn't work. And like, what happened? I tried it. I'm like, oh, well, actually this time he did this. So it's a different thing you have to do. And I'm training their brain to actually look at what's happening and come up with answers for the responses their partner is giving them, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we want. Then if they get go to the triangle, and then we do that with like an arm bar, and then we do that with like an overhook from closed guard, and then we do it with like dragging the arm across the body from closed guard, and then we start in closed guard and show them how to get to the overhook, how to drag the arm across, we're like from the base up building skill sets they can use, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you just start someone, show them an arm bar and you go, okay, now start from standing and go at it. Like they're not going to do anything useful because they don't even know how to get to the arm bar. So reverse engineering makes a lot more sense contextually. Now, that being said, there's a lot more to calculate in here. Like it needs to be fun. Some people might find that not fun. I love doing that, but some people might find that not fun. So you need to mix it up and have regular rolling and specific training. And ultimately everyone needs to find the pattern that works best for them. But to me, if you forget whether people's motivations and stuff, and you just assume that you like doing that structurally, that makes the most sense to me, you know? Mm -hmm. That's so funny. When we were talking to Malachi Friedman, he's like, I, the thing I hate is something we got to make it fun sometimes. He's like, I wish I could coach in some sort of like Soviet program, you know, where they were yeah. forced to do what, <laughs> what I wanted them yeah, to do. Yeah, for sure. Jonathan, you're known for your open guard game. And we've mentioned, you know, like collar sleeve, et cetera. What other techniques or technique do you specialize in that people typically do not associate you with? 
I mean, I, I would like to think people think of my passing too, but I guess I'm passing. I love pass. I probably like passing more than guard, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I, I play a lot of positions. I think that's probably the biggest thing people talk about when they roll with me. I've never trained with me is the amount of positions I play. So, I mean, I do double sleeve, collar sleeve, cross sleeve, De La Hiva, set up guard, De La Hiva X, key master, matrix, cross guard. You know, I play pretty much everything. I don't play much lapel stuff. Uh, now I'm starting to get into underhook De La Hiva as well, begrudgingly, just because mm-hmm. I've spent so much time passing it. Now I'm starting to understand it. So now I want to play it. Close guard? Bolos. Yeah, I love close guard. Uh, yeah, I always did close guard when I was like white belt, blue belt. Still have a very dangerous close guard. I love it. The only thing with close guard is you have to be good at setting it up, which requires a good open guard. So there's no way around that really. Uh, and then passing. Yeah, I love passing. You know, just having good answers for collar sleeve, double sleeve, daily, all of them, you know? So yeah, I mean, I try to be a multi-skill player, not like, a, you know, like this is my thing. I, I think mm. that you always benefit by cross mixing positions. So would you then start students in with open guard since you have to get to close guard from open guard? I've heard some instructors believe in that approach versus it seems like it's widely adopted to start with new students in closed guard. I think it doesn't matter too much where you start. At the end of the day, we, we're going to have the same end goal. So like I could, if, especially if we're using specific training, I could show someone like, you know, probably you want to start with like a triangle choke and arm bar first, because a lot of things are going to end with the, one of those. But you could, I think if you use specific sparring, it matters less because you can isolate them, right? So if you can, if you're using specific sparring, then it would be completely fine to start with like triangle choke arm bar and then close guard setups for those things because it's very isolated and safe. There's a lot less chaotic movement, a lot less variables because the person's trapped. I think it's a great start point. It teaches the person the idea of like comboing attacks. It's a bit simpler. There's a lot of benefits to doing closed guard first. And then the person knows if they can get, clo- especially from a street situation, the person's probably going to jump on you mm. and try to like murder choke you. Then mm-hmm. closed guard is pretty common, right? So in that mm-hmm. sense, I think closed guard's great. Now, however, if we're at a gym where they don't utilize specific training as much, and then we show a closed guard technique in class and they go into regular rolling and they say, okay, just go at it. And they start without closed guard. Then I think starting with closed guard actually is not that effective because they probably won't be able to get the closed guard because their opponent's going to be standing or on one knee up and denying closed guard. So then they're just left aimlessly flailing their legs and pulling on things, hoping they end up in closed guard at some point. So Very in that sense, then they should probably do open guard first. But if you're in, in theory, if you're at a gym that utilizes a lot of specific training, then I think there'd be nothing wrong with doing like, okay, we'll do triangle for a week or two, arm bar for a week or two, close guard for three or four weeks, and then branch out into some kind of open guard, like double sleeve or collar sleeve or daily Hiva, you know, and then branch up from there. What are your go-to takedowns? I wrestled in high school and I did judo, but uh, if I'm going to, I usually pull guard in competition just because it's just like simpler, less room for some sort of wild randomness or injury or whatever. But mm-hmm. usually like a single leg with the lapel. I, I got that from Lapri a lot where I grab the lapel, get my head in their temple, drop to my knees, try to catch the single leg with the lapel, collar drag. Uh, either straight to the takedown with it or like collar drag single leg, maybe a sacrifice throw, but it's usually like one of those. Uh, Also kind of like there's one I picked up from Lucas with like a cross collar where I do kind of a, I guess it's like a, you could call it a Koichi Gari, but it's more kind of like a foot tap to ankle pick. What are your thoughts on the state of jujitsu right now and sort of where do you see it going? I know it's kind of weird with the pandemic because some places of the world are open versus others. Some places of the U.S. are more open than others. Some places are wide open. I would imagine that jujitsu is going to evolve out of those places, oddly enough. Europe has looked much more open than the U.S., so I'm thinking maybe, who knows, maybe some evolution will come out of there. 
I think that for me, like the pan, I mean, granted, I live in Sweden and stuff. So it, we, we didn't really lock down. We were just kind of like YOLO on everything. But I think people who train intelligently certainly benefit during this time period because people who get a lot of their technique by being at a major gym with a ton of people and just going hard every day, they have been separated more. Whereas people who do a lot of film study and analyzation and stuff kind of benefit because I can train with like one or two people and get a ton of progress by just going deep on a position every day. Mm-hmm. So I feel like maybe this time period will benefit the technical people who train technically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, I guess people who happen to be in states that have access to not lockdown training might benefit more too, I guess. But yeah, it's hard to say. I just don't know how I don't know if we're going to open up in a few months or if like the world's going to lock down more or like, mm-hmm. you, you know, there's going to be a civil war. If we're going to have a world war, uh, you know, I don't know. But uh, mm-hmm. from a technical standpoint, pre-pandemic, where do I see jujitsu going? I just think the training methodologies are going to keep evolving. This whole mindset of just like go into the gym, go hard as hell twice a day. I think is slowly going to get phased out, especially as they start testing for doping more. People are going to have to start training smarter. I mean, I think most people know that most of these people at these major top gyms, not going to name names, but Mm -hmm. we all know who they are, are just on steroids and they're training in a very unsustainable way. And I think that as the sport evolves, hopefully they'll get more drug checking in it. And then people are going to slowly start developing more intelligent training practices. And perhaps that's even going to get ramped up because of the lockdown. With a lot of your jujitsu experimentation, have there been moments when you thought, oh man, I'm onto something really good. And then you just realize that it didn't work. What was it that didn't work in the, in those instances, you know? I don't even remember them when they happen because they happen so commonly. Uh, I mean, no, I like all new ideas are just hypothesis, hypotheses, and then you test them. And then most of the time they're wrong. So I mean, I would say like 90% of the ideas I come up with are just complete fails, right? Mm -hmm. So especially when I do specific training, it's great because it's really like the scientific method, right? I start an underhook De La Hiva and then I'll be training with Espen or whoever. And then I'll go, okay, you know, so just try to kill me from here and then you know, go and we go and then something's difficult. I go back. Okay. Let's try again. Then I go, okay. I grab the pant this way, this time, let me grab it the other way this time. Go. Right. And then we Mm -hmm. go again. Right. It's like, okay, that was a little bit better, but I still got swept to this side. Okay. Let me do this. Go. Okay. And then we go again. Then it's like, okay, I didn't get swept that way, but got knocked this way. And then I'll sit there and think for a minute and like, huh, maybe this, oh, let me try grabbing the lapel this way, you know, lower so that I can actually post on his chest if I lose my balance. Because if I grab high on the lapel, then I can pull, but if I lose my balance, I don't have any post. But if I grab lower on the lapel, if I lose my balance, I can palm into his chest to get balance. That's an interesting thought. Test it out. Oh, okay, that actually works, right? But it turns out that if I grab on this side of the lapel, uh, this lapel on the right side, then I don't have balance against the left side. So maybe I do the cross collar grip, right? Mm-hmm. I do the cross collar grip, but it turns out when you grab the cross collar grip, then you open your elbow knee space and you can actually go for a matrix. Okay. Hmm. So it's everything is so this is why I don't like the general principle model because Hmm. things are so weirdly abstract. Hmm. Like it is so weird. Sometimes I'm in daily Hiva. It's like, Oh, I got to kill the daily Hiva leg, but don't kill it too much. Cause if you kill it too much, you take the weight off of your left foot. These are real things, right? You you know, you take your foot, your weight off your left foot. If you take your weight off your left foot, you can't knee cut as fast, right? Or if you kill the leg too much, then he gets a higher grip on your collar and that kills your posture, making your knee cut weaker. But also if you don't kill the hook at all and he gets the hook in, then he can set a better underhook daily Hiva, right? So it it just gets massively complicated. So I'm basically Mm -hmm. always in these positions trying to just troubleshoot, come up with an idea, test it. But I mean, every single day, like if I'm in a position for three hours, I probably did two and a half hours of specific sparring and underhook daily Hiva this morning with Espen. And 
I mean, I probably tested like 40 ideas or something, you know, and then maybe one was good. So, but that's normal, right? Yeah. So I would say like all the time, basically. Going back to Vicecard a little bit or branching mm-hmm. off of it, I know you've lately you've worked on, and perhaps this is maybe not so lately, uh, Reverse Vicecard as well. And you have awesome material, by the way, on Grappler's Guide. Everyone will oh, we'll add you. a link to all Appreciate your stuff. It. You were excited to see what other people would do with it. Have you seen any cool things that other people have done with the vice card and or perhaps expanded on it? Ahmad, one of the guys in Stockholm from Prana, he started using the Tariqa Plata a lot from there. I really like that. Oh, um, I kind of pick I picked that up from him. That's actually in my Grappler's Guide set, but I like he kind of came up with that. I thought it was a really cool mm-hmm. idea. I think a lot of mixing it with kind of like butterfly sweep variations could be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of crab ride and bolo stuff potentially mm-hmm. could be really interesting. The passing variations with it, I think, uh, is very interesting. Single legs with it, I think, could be really interesting. I think you could definitely do a lot of bumping and coming up on single legs. There's a lot of possibilities with it. I think the main thing with Vice Guard is if you get it, it is extremely powerful. The main thing is that you need a reasonable open guard game to set it up. That's the mm-hmm. thing that I think that will be the limiting factor for people. Not that they can't overcome it, but like if you're a brand new white belt and you like want to use this thing, then it's like you will need to do the groundwork in the base positions like collar sleeve, double sleeve, cross sleeve. Those are foundational guards. It's analogous to like X guard. X guard's a great guard. But if I ask someone like, what guard do you, what guards do you like to play? If they say X guard, that's a bad answer because you got to set it up. So you need mm-hmm. grips. You need a guard to set up the X guard, right? So if someone's a white belt and I show them X guard, cool, but they can't get to it. If I show mm-hmm. them collar sleeve, they can get to collar sleeve, right? So mm-hmm. that, cause it's just all they got to do is grab a sleeve, right? Mm-hmm. So vice card's very, very powerful, but it's like, you really need to put the effort up front into base open guard systems to be able to start setting it up well, I think. You've seen tons of academies through your seminars and such and your travels. Yeah. What makes a great academy to you? Culture is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And also, again, there's a major distinction here between building a competition team, building a gym for making money or building a gym for somewhere you want to hang out at personally, right? Hmm. So there's no such thing as like, this is a good gym. It just depends on what you're looking for, right? Mm-hmm. So like if you're the owner of a gym and you want to design a gym so that it's like a highly tuned machine that can run really well so that you can one day leave the country and like leave someone else in charge and then it's going to make you money and you don't have to be there when you don't want to and you're looking to use it as a way to develop financial uh, freedom, then that gym is going to look a very different way than a gym that you're using to be like, we're going to make competitors or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, right? Versus it's going to be very different than if you make a gym that's like, I just want it to be a fun, friendly place I like to hang out at, Right. you know? So there is no way to say like, this is what I think is the best. Uh, I guess what I would say is where I, I feel like I flourish. And I personally, that like people like me will do well here with this. This is It's really cool to be here with uh, Tommy and Espen because it's pretty much exactly what I do at my gym, which is basically nothing. It's like in the morning here, we come in and we have coffee for like, 30 to 40 minutes and hang out and talk and get into a good mood. And then when each person's ready, they just kind of decide they get on the mat. Maybe they start stretching, they get with one of their friends and they just start working on doing whatever. And some days it might be, you know, I roll with Tommy and Espen regular rolls and really hard. And they just want to try to pass me and kill me. And then some days I might come in and I'm kind of tired and I just want to work with the blue belt on my crab ride. Some days I come in and me and Espen do specific training for three hours in one position, trying to kill each other in that. Some days I, I, maybe I'll just watch, you know, and no one stresses anyone, whatever you want. 
I find that best because, and I talked to Aspen a lot about this. He agreed with this is like, you can't make someone be a champion who doesn't want to be. Mm-hmm. I started in a very small gym in St. Louis. It was very like hands off. Okay. I was like, I want to be a champion. So I watched video all the time. I was excited to come to the gym all the time. I was fired up. I could always do what I wanted. I have free reign to do whatever I want. My coach always gave me free reign to do what I want, right? So mm-hmm. I flourished, right? If I come in and I'm fired up to work on some new thing I like was watching a video on and I'm excited about it and I have all this energy and passion and I come in and they're just like, okay, guys, we're doing single legs tonight or half guard. That's cool if someone really is motivated by that, but I'm not motivated by that right now. So you're sucking the excitement out of my life, right? out of my training experience. So I don't want to show up to the gym then. I'd rather stay at home and work on what I want to work on, right? So Mm -hmm. I think when you create an atmosphere where you have the openness for people to kind of pursue what they want, I'm not suggesting this is a great business model either, right? But when you create an atmosphere that allows people to do what they want, then like the lady who's like divorced and 35 and decided to pick up a hobby after getting a divorce can come in and just kind of work a little bit and then watch people and like whatever. And then, you know, or maybe she wants to be a serious competitor, whatever she wants to do, she can come in and then do it. Right. And then some 18 year old kid who wants to go to war mode can come Mm. in and do that too. And everyone can Mm. kind of like feel how they feel it. Right. I mean, Mm. I guess Sometimes it's good to have like maybe one or two days a week. You're like, this is the day that we go hard as hell. If you want to go to that class, you can do it. So everyone's on the same page for that class. But I think the more freedom you give, the better. And then people who really want to be champions are going to figure it out. They're going to come in and be like, oh, hey, who wants to go hard? Who? What? You'll figure it out, right? But I think that freedom helps a lot. I think people try to over force people to be good competitors who don't want to. There's a good uh, clip of Richard Feynman talking about, you know, someone asked him what's the best way to teach or something or to learn or something. And he's just talking about his kids and he was explaining how like with his son, every time he would teach him stuff, he would have to like make these like really like interesting, fun little games out of it where he would be like, he would describe something in a different way to make his son think about it. He would do these fun little games and make learning really fun and playful. And like, he loved that. And he learned so much from that. And then he'd try that with his daughter and she would just be like, oh, I don't want to do this. And then she really liked just the facts, just give her the facts. Right. And it's yeah. like, there is like humans are different and we all learn differently. So what is the right methodology for me to learn is not going to be the same as for someone else. So I think that if I teach a formal class, like, cause I have like my morning sessions in Sweden are very open like that. But at night I have formal classes where I teach. I always tell people, Hey guys, here's like, I kind of follow a somewhat of a curriculum. Okay. I'm going to do double C for a week or two, then call or C for a week or two. And I kind of follow a curriculum. People can follow it if they want, but I always tell people, if you're really motivated about something else, you can do that if you want as well. Right. And just ignore what I'm saying and just do your thing. So I always like to give freedom. Can you tell us a time when you wanted to quit and why? No, I never wanted to quit. Really? Wow. Through all the injuries and anything, you never thought, no. No, there was times where I felt that I, my um, injury might force me to not be able to uh, train. I had a bad back injury and I thought I wasn't going to be able to train again. So then I I started like getting into swimming a lot because it was the only thing that didn't hurt. So being in the pool was great. great. Yeah, it was really good for the back and neck and stuff. I considered that a lot. And then I was like, oh, maybe I'll get into like, you know, it was like a year or so I was like in that mode. So I was just trying to find other things I would get into. I mean, I think I could have been happy doing a lot of things, not jujitsu. Like I I just like strategy and problem solving. So Mm -hmm. it just happened to manifest into jujitsu, but it could have been anything really. But yeah, I I like jujitsu more now than I ever have. I think the, the key thing there is that you have to pursue it. It makes you excited. 
right? Like you have to make it interesting for yourself. So if you're training and it's like boring, then you need to put more thought into what you're doing. Like what's exciting to you? Watch a highlight reel, find something that's exciting. Like, oh my God, the Baron Bolo looks cool. Then work on that because it's exciting. You want, you think it looks cool and you're excited about it. Learn to do it. Like be driven by passion, right? You can't okay. come in and do it like a job. It's got to be, you know, something that's exciting. So if I see something cool, I'm like, whoa, that's really neat. Then, then I'm excited about it and I want to work on mm -hmm. it. So I just always follow my passion in everything in life. So I try to just follow what's exciting to me. What are your nagging injuries, pains, and, and what do you do to mitigate them? Do you have any health tips? Yeah. So I've gone through many phases. I would say that first thing I think that I think helps is to have a flexible training schedule. So for me, I don't, it's not like training is just do jujitsu. It could be a mobility routine uh, workout. It could be a strength workout. It could mm -hmm. be a technical jujitsu session. It could be a really hard, intense jujitsu session. It could be uh, a hard anaerobic workout, like running stairs, or it could be like a long distance jog or swim. Okay. Those are all the different things. I try to hit like two workouts a day. Okay. Uh, maybe one if I'm really tired. And then I try to have like a floating goal for the week. Mm -hmm. So floating goals. So like floating goals, the reason I prefer this versus strict schedule, it, what I mean by floating, uh, floating goals is like, okay, try to aim for two strength sessions a week three mobility sessions a week, five to six technical sessions a week, maybe seven to eight jujitsu sessions a week. So technical sessions would be jujitsu sessions. And then maybe two hard sessions a week. And the hard session could either be running stairs or doing a really hard jujitsu round, whatever. Okay. So I try to have these like loose kind of goals. And then you play with your days and you see how you feel. Because the problem that like with a normal, say, strength training schedule or something mm -hmm. is that with a normal strength schedule, it's usually not designed for someone who's doing jujitsu eight times a week. So mm -hmm. it might be that you schedule Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I do strength training. Mm -hmm. But then what can happen is like, maybe let's say Wednesday, you're supposed to do pull pulling or something, right? On Wednesday, mm -hmm. you're strength training, you're supposed to do pulling. Well, then Tuesday night, you happen to have a really good guy visiting who passes a lot and you end up playing spider guard for two hours, rolling with this guy a bunch and you just did two hours of hard pulling exercises. Now, Wednesday morning, you were supposed to do your polling strength routine, but you just did two hours of polling Tuesday night. So it's kind of overkill. It doesn't really make sense. right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're supposed to have a really hard jujitsu session Monday morning, but Sunday you just had a huge fight with your girlfriend and you couldn't sleep or whatever personal stuff happens and you can't sleep. So you got four hours of sleep. Well, injury risk goes up massively when you don't have sleep. So you go in Monday morning to train hard on four hours of sleep you feel terrible, you're likely to get injured. So it'd be better that you go in and have a lighter jujitsu session then, right? Mm -hmm. So by having more floating goals, you can try to like generally hit where you want and feel it out, right? Because it may be that I go, okay, Monday is supposed to be the lighter session, right? But then I'm working on a position. I make a big breakthrough. I'm really excited. About it. I'm fired up. I'm not going to go, oh, I got to stop. It's the light day. No, I'm excited. I'm going to go for two more hours if I can. Cause I'm excited. And then that mm -hmm. night that was supposed to be hard. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to take it easy. I'll just do mobility tonight. Cause it went so hard this morning. And it fits mm -hmm. naturally. Naval Ravikant is like someone I like to listen to a lot these days. One of his quotes was like creativity dies with a full schedule or something like along those mm -hmm. the idea. Mm -hmm. And I totally think that's true with jujitsu as well as everything. So like I try to have more of a floating schedule and that gives me a lot more excitement. Another thing that's helped me recently, uh, I'm not suggesting everyone do this, but I got really into strength and mobility for a while uh, and I still love it. And I'm starting to get back into it now. I think it's a really, really good thing. But I find sometimes you can get into this place with jujitsu where you're trying to be in great straight, get great shape, super strong, super flexible, amazing cardio and do everything perfectly. And it can almost become 
like a crutch or a defense mechanism where like I could be traveling doing seminars or something. And what could happen is like, I'm like, oh man, you know, the last two weeks I drank a little bit because people wanted to take me out on the seminar tour and I haven't gotten to eat right. And now I'm not in good shape. And then, you know, these guys want to go super hard and I, I just haven't got to, you know, it's a bad, you know, and they probably want to kill me because I'm at a seminar or whatever. And like, you can kind of get to this place where you try to get in such good shape that like, you feel like you always got to be in like triathlon shape to train. Right. But like, I like to actually have the mindset that it's always technique. Even if someone has mm-hmm. way better cardio than me and I'm hungover and sick feeling, I want my technique. Like if you uh, are a black belt and you roll with like a blue belt, who's like n- relatively new, right? Even if he's a triathlete, you should be able to just kind of go easy and, and beat him up easily, right? Because your technique mm-hmm. is better. Mm-hmm. I want to be so technical that I can do that with anyone. So by putting the, the emphasis on my technique, it actually relaxes a lot. But uh, by putting the emphasis on my technique and always blaming technique, even if I, it's like, realistically, it was cardio, like I was way out of shape, whatever. I still always go, well, man, you know, I should have been able to stall this guy somewhere. I should have known the grip fight so well that even though he wants to go crazy moving, I could get the right grip, lock him up, stall, catch my breath, wait until I'm ready. You know, I, I always blame technique because when yeah. you do that, it alleviates all the stress with everything else. And then of course, having good strength, good mobility, good cardio is a really, really powerful extra to have, but there's a way people can use it where it's like a crutch, where they're too reliant on being super strong, mm. like they need to be strong. But, but if, if you're going to be Mikey Musumeki and fight Muhammad Ali, at the end of the day, the guy's going to be stronger, bigger, mm-hmm. everything, right? So mm-hmm. you, you, I think that that's a danger with that. Again, that I'm not mm-hmm. saying don't strength train or anything, right? Man. But I kind of went through a period after my shoulder surgery. I'm not saying this is healthy. Okay. But I went through a period after my shoulder surgery where I couldn't really train super hard and stuff. So I kind of just started doing jujitsu purely for the fun of it. And I allowed myself to just do whatever I want. So I would actually go out and party a lot, drink, have fun with friends and just have a great time. I come into the gym, maybe on like four or five hours of sleep hungover, feeling really bad. Mm -hmm. And I would just go, Oh, I'm just going to go in and work a little technique, whatever. And then I would just work on stuff, you know, specific training, light, whatever. And then over time I get warmed up and I'd end up going three or four hours because I ended up just following what was exciting. But I set the bar so low to just show up and, you know, I would never miss training. So I would train two times a day, every day, even if I had no sleep, I would never miss training, but I just set the bar really low and made sure I always go in and that would drive me to go up. And I actually found when I, I was strength training less, doing less mobility and stuff and just going at a slow pace that I can control and slowly elevate my injuries and everything went down a lot. So I'm not hmm. saying the science is there on that. That was my lived experience. And this is coming from someone who's done a ton of strength and mobility. So mm-hmm. I think designing a schedule you really like living in and then going at a pace you can manage. If you feel like you're a little bit run down, if you feel like you're a little bit injured, go in and just work light on technical stuff. And then if you feel like you get warmed up and you feel better, then start going hard. But I think a lot of people go in and they do like this like running warm up, learn a random technique, and then they think they're warm but they're really not. And then suddenly going to hard regular training, it hits like a ton of bricks. Whereas mm-hmm. if you come in and you start kind of light and slowly escalate from a light roll or, or specific training all the way up to the harder, harder training, you tend to get injured less. I try to eat a generally healthy diet. I read a book a long time ago. It was The Grappler's Guide to Sports Nutrition by John Berardi. That's always been kind of my pinnacle for understanding diet and eating and stuff. So generally when I'm trying to be healthy and I'm in kind of that mode, I have the floating schedule like I described. And then I do two big meals a day and then I do healthy snacking. The reason I like two big meals a day is I'm training so much. It's hard to do three meals. I'm always bloated before going into training. So I like to wake up and have a cup of coffee, watch Mm -hmm. some jujitsu for maybe 30, 40 minutes uh, or talk with friends, whatever, go into the gym, get like three hours of training in, 
come home and I eat a giant breakfast, right? So it'll mm-hmm. be like five eggs, some bacon, avocado, mozzarella, oatmeal with a bunch of butter and peanut butter in it and a banana and orange juice and just giant meal. So like 1300, 1500 calories. And then I just crash for like 30 minutes or something, right? 40 minutes, maybe. So right? it's like a unintentional intermittent fasting is sort of what I'm hearing. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So I do that. I crash for a bit, get up, and then I'll probably do some business stuff for a bit. Uh, if I'm teaching again at night, then I'll be maybe do like a light snack, like some broccoli and hummus or carrots and hummus or carrots and peanut butter, just something small. And then I'll go again at night and train. And that might be more technical work. I might just coach and not do much, or I might come in and just stretch a little bit or something. Come home, Or maybe I end up training again hard, depends on how I feel. Uh, come home again, do another giant meal, maybe a steak, like a ribeye steak with sweet potato, avocado, a bunch of olive oil, you know, and then if I feel like I need more calories, I'll do a couple peanut butter sandwiches, you know, maybe throw some broccoli in there in the meal or something and then crash. So I do two major meals a day and then a lot of snacking. And I find that for me is just more manageable because it's uh, the three meals a day thing is just very hard for me because I don't want, if I wake up and I eat a big meal, I don't want to train. I'm digesting. Yeah. So Same. I like to wake up, get my training in, giant meal, crash. If I'm going to train again, then maybe small snack, go to training at night hard again, come back home, giant meal, maybe a snack after that, crash. Several times you brought up studying matches. How do you approach that? It sounds like it's a really important part of your uh, experience. Yeah, it's huge. Well, a lot of time it's driven by necessity. So if I spend, you know, two hours specific sparring with someone in a position and they're giving me a hard time and I'm like, God dang it, I can't figure it out. And I'm annoyed. Then like inherently I just go home and I'm like, I want to figure it out. Right. So then I watch video of people in those. I try to find matches of really good people in the position that I'm having a hard time with to get influenced to see what they do there. Right. I'm like, oh, okay. They did that. That's interesting. I've never tried that. Great. Maybe I'll try that tomorrow. Boom. That solves the problem. So it's like engineering, like solving positions is like engineering. It's not just hard labor. Hard labor doesn't necessarily give you the right answer. You could do the wrong thing a thousand times in a row. So Mm -hmm. I'm looking to save the damage on my body and like use film study to give me proposed possible new options. Cause I may be in a position I go, I would never thought of grabbing there. That's interesting. Let's see what happens when I do that tomorrow with the same partner. Boom. Now they're having a hard time. Problem solved. Next problem. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my film study is driven by what's happening and giving me a hard time in the gym. So I look for other competitors being in those positions and seeing what they're doing. So I borrow the ladder so I don't have to reinvent the wheel. And then also I just kind of develop a habit of like every more recently I haven't been doing as much because like we do coffee here and hang out and talk before training, but I'm getting so much training here and stuff. It's kind of good. I usually film study more at night while I'm here so far, but when I'm in Sweden in my normal routine, I every morning before I go to the gym, I do like 30 minutes of video study with uh, an espresso before going to the gym. And that gets me fired up with the caffeine, uh, listening to music, watching the matches, studying, getting all these ideas. And I get so excited to go in the gym and test them, go into the gym, test the ideas on everyone, see what's working, see what's not working, go back home, giant meal, crash, repeat. Mm-hmm. But film study so for sure is a major, major thing. Yeah. Five positions. Yeah, by position. Oh, so there is a systematic I, approach to this. Do you have some sort of Excel file or something like that? Are you going through each thing or no, is it more no. reactive? Like you said, like I'm having a problem with this, so I'm going to watch um, this or is it more just kind of a feel thing? You got to follow the passion. I know it's like such a shitty answer. People probably don't want to hear, but you got to follow what's exciting to you. Like if you're working on like Baron mm-hmm. Bullows, I, I don't know if people understand what I'm saying when I say this, but there's a difference between like, I could tell someone, okay, go work your arm bar, right? And they're like, okay, I'm going to do my arm bar, right? But like, if you're watching highlight reels and you see someone do a Baron Bolo and you're like, dude, that's so cool. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're like super excited about it. That's what you want. 
take mm-hmm. that and then watch video of someone doing that bare and bone and go, oh my God, who is that guy? I've never seen the guy do that. That's interesting what he did. And then find like follow that intuition. Okay this guy's doing barambolos and I want to see other matches of this guy and see what he does. And then you see him do a grip and go, Oh, I'm going to try that tomorrow. I'm going to do some specific tomorrow in the gym with my buddy. And I'm going to try to do this. Right. And then you start playing with it. Right. And you see how it works. And then he blocks it. And you're like, Oh, that's kind of annoying. Huh? Well, and then you ask him, Oh, what happens if I do this? How does this, and you test ideas. And you go, okay, let me go watch that guy again and see what he does. So you kind of have to follow your intuitions a bit, but yeah, a lot of it will be driven by specific training. If you're specific training, you're going to have problems. And then when you watch competition footage, and you kind of skim the match until you find the spot where they're in a position like you were in or close to it and see if you can take some ideas away from it and then mm-hmm. test it. But sometimes I'll just watch matches just to watch. So I might not have an intent. I might not be like, oh, I'm trying to solve this problem. I might just watch it because I'm just, oh, I'll watch 30 minutes before I go to class. And I'll just watch different matches with different competitors. And I might see someone do something I never even considered. Maybe I'm focused on collar sleeve right now, but then they do some really cool pass that I was not planning on working at all. But it's really exciting to me. I might go in that day and just go, oh, I'm going to try this today instead of the collar sleeve stuff I was doing because that was cool. And I play with it and it makes a big breakthrough. And it's not even what I was looking for. It's just kind of exciting. But you want to be excited all the time. That's the main thing. You can probably tell from listening to me, I'm excited, right? So <laughs> you, you want to be you want to be excited all the time. If you're like if it's monotonous for you, something's wrong. Like it should be excitement. You should be driven. So you gotta like watch a lot of competition video, find what's exciting to you. Also use your specific sparring in the gym to see what problems are popping up. That's probably naturally gonna drive you to want to look for solutions, find competitors who are in those positions and see what they do. And then test ideas. See, oh, you know, when he's fighting, he's got, you know, I put my leg here. I notice his legs here. I wonder if there's a if there's a reason for that or that changes something. Because sometimes you'll look at something and you'll think by watching video, that probably doesn't matter that much. But then you go test it and you change the angle of your foot a little bit and you go, whoa, this position's completely different now. Jiu-Jitsu is a game of like details. One little detail change will change everything. So you gotta have that kind of thirst for solving the problems. All right. So uh, what did day one of BJJ look like for you? Uh, well, I had done judo a bit before, and then I um, got Brazilian jiu-jitsu books and started teaching myself a lot of technique. I watched UFCs and rewind, would rewind Hoist Gracie and kind of teach myself techniques. And I did that stuff a lot. And then I found a gym in my area, finally, um, my senior year of high school, and I got my dad to take me in. He took me in. I had a black eye from like wrestling. But I think when I came in, they all thought I was like this skinny kid that was getting picked on in school. <laughs> so then everyone was like really like supportive, like, oh, my God, we have to help him. You know, and then they kind of took me in and then uh, and then they kind of you know took care of me. Uh, yep. And that was great. It was a great gym. Hudrigo Vagis in St. Louis. I Very was cool. really, really, really thankful to have my um, start there. And it was just such a great time. So I've noticed with all you really high level guys that, that are known sort of in the in the jujitsu space here is that you're all incredibly hard workers touching on that. How did you make this personal brand of yours so successful? Man, uh, I'm going to dispel something here. I don't think I'm really a hard worker. I, I think I just wow. I'm just really I just do what I like doing and mm. I'm really good at finding ways to make what I like doing help mm. me. So when I was in college, I loved jujitsu and I would, I didn't like study because I was supposed to, like, that's what I wanted to do. I Mm -hmm. loved jujitsu. I was bored. I -hmm. would watch jujitsu video. When I was in class, I would think about jujitsu, you know, and I would like write down ideas and then test them and then go find and start, you know, I was obsessed with jujitsu. It was my, my pastime. So I did that forever. And then like, you know, I just kept doing it and then I would do well in competition because it was my hobby, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I got through school and I did what I had to do to get, you know, to get my grades and stuff. And I did good, but like, I wasn't like passionate about it. I was passionate about jujitsu. And then like, you know, I had a good job working in DC. I quit that moved to Atlanta because I love doing jujitsu. You know, mm-hmm. it was never work for me. It was never work. I always just did what I wanted. Right. And mm-hmm. then, you know, and then I figured out, oh, I can make money doing privates. That's better than teaching a class, you know, and then you figure out, okay, I do seminars. And then I started doing the YouTube channel because a friend told me, oh yeah, well, you know, you have a lot of good ideas and you talk well, so you might as well do a YouTube channel. And I mm-hmm. like explaining ideas and putting stuff out there. So it's like, yeah, I'll just film that, right? Because that's fun, right? So mm-hmm. I do that and then people start watching it and then people start giving you seminar offers, instructional offers. And then it's like, yeah, I like sharing my ideas. I can organize, I like organizing them and explaining them. So I organize and I explain, I put an instructional out. Like I pretty much, I'm always doing things I want to do. You know, I view self-discipline as like, if you're playing a video game and like you have a car in the video game, usually mm-hmm. the car has like a booster option. So there's like yeah. a normal car and you click the boost button. Okay. Mm-hmm. To me, self-discipline is like the boost button. Okay. You can't drive the car with the boost button the whole time. Mm-hmm. The boost button is like, you know, oh, I want to do that podcast. Like I want to do a podcast, whatever. And then like, I'm just a little bit tired. I don't want to get out of bed right now. Cause it's kind of comfortable. And I'm like, oh yeah, you did say you were going to do that. Oh, come on, John, do it. Oh. And I get, and I get out, out of bed, but then I'm excited to do the podcast and it's super fun. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the live stream or whatever. Right. Like it's not work for me. I, I try mm-hmm. to never do anything I don't want to do. So discipline is just a little booster. It's like a nice little extra I use on a lot of things. And I think that's really pivotal. Like you got to like, and only, you know, what motivates you, right? So mm-hmm. you got to figure out you and what's exciting to you and really follow your intuitions. Same with reading. Like reading is really boring until you're reading about something like, you know, if you, uh, like if I give you a vacuum cleaner manual, you're not going to be interested in reading it with no context. I'm like, oh yeah, read this. It's going to be the most boring thing you've ever read, right? Mm-hmm. But if I tell you that, oh, you know, you have a date with like a beautiful girl and she's going to hook up with you if your apartment's super clean and your vacuum cleaner's broken, you're going to like, oh, I got to figure it out. You're going to figure it out, right? You're going to be mm-hmm. more vested in solving it. Okay, it's a weird analogy. <laughs> context makes things exciting and interesting. So I try to always like read all the time and find and follow passions and interests and things that are stimulating my creativity, my curiosity and Mm -hmm. those things. And that leads me wherever it does because that emotion gives me so much happiness in my life. Then it doesn't matter how successful I am, whatever that's going to eventually keep me happy. And as a byproduct turns out that happens to make you work harder than others, even though to me, it's not work. Well, you're executing. Like a, That's the difference. I think I see a lot of people watching the stuff and taking a lot of inspirational stuff and getting motivation, but they don't execute quite as much as you do. Yeah. You mean, you mean as far as posting and stuff? Yeah. I mean, all of it's a lot of work. I mean, I see, like you said, you're IG live, you were doing a lot of experimentation there. You were doing some Facebook stuff and the YouTube stuff, the Q and A stuff, the, even the instructionals that you do. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's what you just mean. A lot. It's interesting. Yeah, do you use any sort of productivity systems or methodologies? You know, are you doing any of that stuff? Yeah, I try to balance it out a little bit. Um, GTD, you've probably heard of that before. Um, yeah, getting things done for people who don't know David yeah. Allen's system. The concepts of that I like a lot. I've a hundred percent developed like self organizer systems and all sorts of stuff like that. I try to basically right now, and I'm not always on this. I kind of fluctuate depending on my mood. If I start to feel a little bit like lethargic or like I'm being lazy, then I might get back on it a bit because I have a lifestyle where I don't really have to do anything. Like I don't want to even teaching at the gym. I don't have to go so I can kind of do what I want. It's mm-hmm. like kind of a more of an entrepreneurial lifestyle. 
I try to always have like two to three things. It depends on what the things are because one thing could be take five hours depending on what it is. But mm-hmm. I try to have like two to three things to do a day that I'm like, if I got this done, I wouldn't be a complete turd. That's like my bare minimum. Okay. And then I try to make my hot, I try to be very, I did privates with this billionaire before from Monaco. And I asked him, you know, I got to have a lot of cool conversations with him and I, he gave me different little life bits, you know, and uh, he told me, choose your hobbies. Well, he's like, you have fun doing a lot of things. Make sure you pick good things because you're going to spend a lot of time doing them. And that I really resonated with me. And like, for Mm -hmm. me, I try to make my leisurely hobbies things that are beneficial to me. Mm -hmm. So I could make a leisurely hobby watching Netflix. I -hmm. can also make my leisurely hobby listening to audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Or like when I get home and I finish training and I'm crashing on the couch and I just want to be a bum on the couch for two hours, then like I could make my leisurely hobby, you know, of like when I want to just be a slug on the couch, I could listen to an audiobook or a podcast instead of say watching a Netflix show. What's the compounding mm-hmm. effect of that for a year? I mean, mm-hmm. it's massive. Like, you know, like one book, just like one detail change when you're passing the guard, like, oh, my hand here versus here, right? Can make all the difference. One little concept idea like that can make a massive effect for you over like 20 years of your life. And to me, then it's not so much that I'm focused on things I have to do. I have two to three things I have to do in a day that are really simple to get done and I get those done. And then the rest is just trying to feel good and have fun. And I follow my intuition. So if it feels like right now, this podcast is really good that I'm listening to, I'm going to listen to it for two hours. If it feels like my body feels kind of stiff and it would feel good to stretch, I'll stretch for a little bit. So I kind of build my schedule off of the two to three things I need to do that day and my schedule. Okay. My schedule is like things that are consistent. Like I got, you know, I can't do the gym whenever I want because I have to meet with other people. So it's like, okay, at 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. I'm at the gym. Okay. Because I want to train anyway. That's my schedule. So I have things that are scheduled. I have two or three goals that I set for a day, which could be like call the tax office or have the conversation with my buddy about what to do with the new website, you know, things like that. Right. And then my hobbies and then make my hobbies, things that are productive. So, you know, I have like a list of like the thing, my, what I call like free time, idle time hobbies, you know, so talk to a friend could be one, right. Instead Mm -hmm. of surfing social media, talk to a friend. So when I'm bored, instead of going dirt, let me look at my phone. I'm bored Mm -hmm. and go, Oh, who, who could I call? Oh, let me call my buddy, Chris. I haven't talked to in like a couple of weeks as a byproduct. He's also really good with business and stuff. So then I'll talk to Chris for fun, but then he, I might be talking to him and he gives me a good business idea or whatever, but making Mm -hmm. that keystone habit change of making my hobbies, things that are productive tends to over time have a compounding effect on me. So I'm never living in this place where I'm like hustling. It's just kind of natural. What interests you outside of BJJ? A lot of like reading did a lot of different topics. Gaming too, right? Yeah, I've been doing gaming a little bit more recently. Mm -hmm. More as a social thing. Mm -hmm. I don't like to just game alone for the most part, Mm -hmm. but every now and then. Go to uh, software apps and websites for you. I mean, I guess I just use like Spotify, podcast, YouTube a lot, you know. Recent podcasts I've been listening to a lot has been Brett Weinstein. I like the Dark Horse podcast. That one's pretty cool. They get a little bit political and they also throw in a lot of like evolutionary biology stuff. It's been kind of cool. Listen to Sam Harris's podcast a bit. I've been listening to Rogan actually a little bit more recently just because he has Mm -hmm. such a wide range of guests and stuff for podcasts. For books recently, Elephant in the Brain rational optimist atomic habits just started uh, the power of now i know a lot of people recommend that actually like Mm -hmm. it a lot more than i expected to a lot of cool stuff jonathan thanks for your time thanks for being everyone for listening and uh, my name is adolfo ferranti your host of forever white belt you know all the places jonathan where can we get more information about you and everything that you're doing 
So you can check out my YouTube, John Thomas BJJ, or my Instagram at John Thomas BJJ. I update stuff on there pretty frequently. I'm starting to do a lot more live streams as well. So check those out. Also, I have instructionals on BJJ Fanatics for my double sleeve series, and I have a lot of content on the Grappler's Guide. So if you go to the Grappler's Guide, check out my Instagram. I have a discount code on there. Thanks for all the YouTube Q&As and stuff. You've provided tons of value for the whole community out there. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.